Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Sean O'Dwyer, who is an associate professor at Kyushu University. Very nice to speak to you again, Sean. Good morning, Chris. And the reason I say again is because the podcast has now been going on long enough. I mean, we're going to be entering our third year very soon that we can check back in on our previous interviewees and see if they're doing what they told us they were going to do. So the text that we're going to be speaking about today is uh, Sean's new book, Handbook on Confucianism in Modern Japan. So my first question is, is this a project that you referenced at the end of your previous interview that we did in June 2020? It is the same one, yes. It was kind of underway at that point too. So I was recruiting authors. Or, yeah, actually just reached the end of recruiting authors and we're starting drafting chapters at that stage. So based on your experience, do you think it, uh, it came together faster than you were expecting two years ago? Slower? About as <clears throat> usual? A little bit slower. Um, I mean, one thing, and actually this might be of interest to some of the um, ELT specialists who are listening in, uh, I made a deliberate uh, choice to recruit non-English speaking background scholars with no experience or very little experience of, of publishing in English. Uh, and that was out of a concern that the field does tend to concentrate on, on a sort of clubbish sort of coteries of often United States-based scholars or who are highly fluent in English. And that has not through design by accident, obviously, but that has um, meant that there has been a certain neglect of East Asian scholars um, who, and also of, of continental European scholars who um, don't habitually publish in English, um, whose work is not getting out there as much as it, as it should be. Uh, and that's particularly the case in this field where a lot of work is being done by East Asian scholars, of, uh, even outside uh, Japan. So um, it, a lot of, um, I, had, I did put some effort into making sure that these scholars would be represented in this volume. So one thing that contributed to the length of the process of getting this to press was that um, several, had to, several of the chapters had to be translated from mm -hmm. Japanese and Chinese. Uh, and that took, I think, about eight or nine months. So yeah, a little bit longer than I expected, but not much longer. I'm, I'm looking at the table of contents now. And yes, it does seem that, as you say, fewer of them are US-based or Anglophone than you might perhaps expect for a book that is published in English. How did you recruit uh, your authors? Was it through directly or was it an open call that uh, the publisher assisted you with? Um, a bit of both. So I initially went for some direct contact with particular scholars that I was particularly interested to recruit. Uh, and that, that sort of yielded mixed results because it was cold contact. And I have to admit, I'm not really well networked in some of the scholarly circles from which I was hoping to draw. Uh, in one case, a scholar, I re a, a German scholar uh, who had written on um, 20th century, uh, the 20th century, 19th, 20th century Japanese um, uh, Todai philosopher, Inoue um, Tesijiro. I had died some 10 years ago, so uh, that, that trail ran quite pretty quickly. Uh, I found some other scholars were reluctant because of, they didn't think the subject matter was, was particularly relevant to them. Um, but some actually were very helpful, even though they couldn't contribute personally to the pr project. They recommended former graduate students or they recommended colleagues, uh, and that led to some very helpful um, recruitment. But 
Uh, I think, yeah, most of the scholars, um, the recruitment occurred just through me putting out uh, a message on some Facebook forums, the Japanese research forum, for example. And then that message got circulated, I think, to the European Japanese philosophy forum. I'm not sure the quite, quite correct name for it. Uh, and the uh, a Japanese philosophy forum and a number of scholars contacted me through that those two um, forums. For our listeners who didn't hear your first interview, philosophical concepts are not things that we often cover in a podcast. We tend to be more uh, language-based, uh, language-learning-based. So could you give us a, a kind of a, a refresher on if someone hadn't read your work before, hadn't read work on Confucianism before, what is Confucianism and how was it adopted into Japan? And I think the reason for you writing this book is because it kind of diverted from what could be considered classical Chinese Confucianism. So could you give us some background on, on what we should know, like a primer on yeah. Confucianism, particularly in the Japanese context? I'll, I'll try and keep it brief, of course. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, um, sometimes it's called a religion, sometimes it's called a kind of philosophy or a political ideology. But anyway, uh, developed in the Warring States era and the, uh, I guess, the 5th century BC, 6th to 5th centuries BCE, in China and basically uh, came out of ideas of evolved notions of, of moral cultivation of particular elevated types of people called the, you know, the, the humane person um, or, or the Junsi, uh, who provides a model both for um, moral practice and also for statecraft. So the idea that uh, through uh, moral cultivation, the cultivation of ritual, uh, you can um, elevate yourself to become someone who it becomes the advisor to a, to a ruler or becomes the ruler uh, himself uh, and rules charismatically uh, and through correct proprietary and through ritual over, you know, over a kingdom. Uh, and this idea sort of, um, these this cluster of ideas, I guess, about uh, moral proprietary or ritual cultivation uh, and statecraft, I guess, became uh, at different times in Chinese history, a, a kind of state ideology. Um, in the Han Dynasty, for example, and later on in the Ming and Qing Dynasties, uh, it became a kind of official ideology for, for, this, for, the, for the state. Um, <clears throat> and became centered on hereditary rulers. So the um, idea of, of the morally cultivated official um, became a way of legitimating state, state um, authority. That, so the, the emperor uh, ideally was guided by ministers who were deeply learned in the Confucian classics and could guide the ruler towards being, uh, you know, towards uh, virtue, virtue and, and ritual rectitude. Um, now, these ideas were not just contained in China, they were trans transmitted outwards at quite a, a, an early stage um, to, to the Korean kingdoms of the Korean Peninsula, to Vietnam, uh, to Japan. Um, they first kind of arrived in Japan around the sixth to seventh centuries. Uh, and you see the, an early constitution by Shotok Taishi, um, which um, kind of contains some Confucian ideas uh, about, you know, about harmony and, and about the um, right rulership. Uh, and to some extent, these ideas were absorbed, but not really deeply. Um, so, and, and perhaps the same could be said for different eras in Chinese and Korean history as well. Um, there were periods when Confucianism was out of favor or was competing for um, the attention of rulers with, with rival ideologies or belief systems. Uh, but in Japan's case, um, 
you don't really you have to wait until the 17th century late 16th to 17th centuries to see a really deep uh, and enduring interest in, in confucian confucianism develop uh with the introduction of so-called jushi um uh confucian orthodoxy in the late 16th century uh coming from china uh and from that period uh in japan you see a flourishing uh of different um what are called schools i guess of confucian philosophy often really competing with each other and vehemently uh disagreeing with each other um but the context is quite different from china so in, in japan in that in that era of course you have the shogunate uh you had a hereditary class uh kind of feudal class of samurai uh, and the um, political authority was kind of divided between the 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 temporal role of the shogunate and the kind of symbolic and ritual authority of the emperor. It's quite a different circumstance from China. So Confucianism had to adapt to a very different cultural and social context. Uh, and in that context, um, no sort of widespread examination system uh, based on grounded in Confucian neo-Confucian orthodoxy really developed in Japan. In contrast to uh, to Ming Kuang Dynasty uh, China or to uh, Cholson Dynasty um, Korea or Vietnam in the same era, so um, in Japan you've got uh, almost a much more diverse um, scene of, of discussion uh, and dispute disputation of Confucianism relative to say China, uh, but it doesn't really put down deep roots as a system for um, credentializing uh advisors to rulers or a public service and a kind of limited system such examinations developed in the late 18th and 19th centuries in japan but they were limited to the samurai class uh, members of the samurai class and they weren't really grounded in a, a an orthodox conception of, of confucian learning uh, like this was the case in china by the early 19th century it was almost like people were primed uh for what was going to follow next it's not like um the uh advent of western um, ideology and thought and technological power was completely unexpected people knew of it and it was almost like there was a society where there was quite a high level literacy and a high level of, of um, philosophical sophistication almost you would say um, and they were kind of in a way prepared for what followed they weren't quite unawares let's say well not to cut you off i mean the, the whole thing is fascinating but the the fact that it it begins as you say like with the fifth century bce and that it i mean some people as you say some people call it a religion some people call it a philosophy some people call it a, a political ideology by the time it was fully embraced in the japanese concept would you say that it was mainly philosophical given that there were competing religions that scholars at the time and the rulers at the time would probably more likely align themselves with and that confucianism was more of a, a, a political philosophy or, or something that if you were well versed in it marked you as someone who was you know politically active virtuous worthy of having your voice heard yeah it's really interesting um how, how to pin it down in the japanese context and i feel like i'm going a little bit outside my specialization in, spe in speculating on this because i'm really much more of a 20th century so oh, don't worry we'll get them we'll get them yeah yeah um <clears throat> There, there was a lot of, from the shogunate's point of view, uh, from the, and from the point of view of regional daimyo, there was a lot of interest in um, Confucian ideas of statecraft, uh, of you know maintaining a kind of ritual harmony between the the subjects and the ruler, uh, of the um, people of the ruler ruling in such a way that the people would be drawn to, to the ruler without you know the use of force or coercion. 
there was a lot of interest in statecraft. Uh, and so you, you might say that there was interest in, in Confucianism as a kind of political philosophy. Um, but yeah, it, it was sometimes more than that. In, for example, in, in this is perhaps digressing a little bit, but in, in what's now Osaka, there were schools of thinking which kind of um, mutated some of the ideas coming out of Confucianism towards a more economic-based uh, perspective on social relations. Uh, and they ended up sort of elevating uh, the Osaka merchant class and their virtues of thrift and uh, of propriety over the, uh, the samurai classes who were, you know, the people who were considered to be the traditional um, bearers of Confucian morality. And there was almost like a drawing from Confucian ideas. There was a kind of reaction against the sort of samurai-centric notions of Confucian morality, which were perhaps regarded with a certain amount of cynicism by the merchant classes because the samurai were regarded as mooches, uh, as, as, as a kind of loafer class. Um, so it's almost like, you know, they're, they're kind of channeling Ayn Rand in some respects, at least in, amongst the people in, in the uh, Osaka region in the early 19th century. So you have quite what seemed to us really modern ideas developing and what seems to be a fairly, uh, you know, fairly traditionalist uh, Confucianist context. Um, so that sort of speaks to the diversity of thinking at the time. Well, some of our listeners may not know some of the terms. So just to clarify, so the, that the shogunate would be what might be considered to uh, essentially be the, the emperor or the, or the regional emperor at the time, uh, depending on where the capital was situated. And also the well, daimyo would be the regional uh, the, the, yeah, the, the regional yeah. ruler who had, a, who had a fiefdom, you know, controlled a certain area of land. And also the idea that the samurai, uh, when not in a, in a time of war, as you say, like they couldn't really do anything else. They were not tradesmen. They were not uh, workers in the field. They they lived off the largesse of the the local rulers to, you know, you know, make a living until they had someone else to fight. Yeah, I mean, the imperial court was, you know, still in Kyoto, but served a largely ceremonial role. So actual political power, military power as well, was wielded by the, the shogunate, um, mm -hmm. which were not, you know, well, maybe at times they were sort of marrying members of the, of the imperial family. They weren't of the imperial family. Yeah, you, you do have this kind of division of power, which becomes increasingly, well, ritual, symbolic versus temporal power, which becomes increasingly contested by the early 19th century um, as, as, leading intellectuals perceive that you know japan might be in peril from foreign forces from europe um and that something needed to be done that the shogunate was not really up to the job but yeah um it, it's pretty much as you describe the the samurai class themselves yeah they often lived in stipends or usually did uh and also they of course they did cultivate side jobs uh and they were expected to do some kind of public service um in addition um but yes in, in times of peace particularly by the late Edo period, I guess people were sort of looking at them a little askance and thinking, well, you know, what are these guys here for? Um. <laughs> well, then then let's talk about, let's let's get into the book and let's get into your your expertise. And so the the name of the book is The Handbook of Confucianism in Modern Japan. Give us a, a time frame. We we've we've been jumping around between certain eras and centuries. Where do you think that the concept of modern Confucianism in Japan, where would you mark it as, as beginning? 
Yeah, that's a tricky point too. Um, because you have a kind of proto-modernity. Uh, like I said, you've, you've got some um, scholars who are advancing some remarkably uh, modern sounding ideas about you know, the economy uh, and about the kind of people who prop up an economy as ordinary laborers as well as merchants are developing in the early 19th century, um, even without Adam Smith being translated in Japan. Um, so, and you also have proto-national- oh those, oh, those difficult Scots when they turn up with their ideas. Yes, yes. So they, I think they, they didn't need any difficult Scots to, to um, evolve the similar idea or kind of parallel ideas in some ways in, in Osaka. But yeah, um, I, and you also have proto-nationalist ideas evolving in the 18th to 19th centuries, um, a sense of differentiation from China culturally uh, and um, a sense that, you know, Japan has its own distinct Sort of cultural institutions and spiritual institutions centered on, on Shinto, for example. I mean, that was a kind of long-term development, um, you know, over a few hundred years. And that contributed in a way to the development of a distinctive Japanese nationalist consciousness in the 19th century. But if you did want a kind of, I mean, the, the book itself really does start with the Bakumatsu period, the sort mm -hmm. of period of transition between the Edo uh, and the um, the Meiji period, um, where thinkers such as uh, Sakuma Shouzan, uh, who's the topic of the second, yeah, second chapter of the book, mm -hmm. were grappling with um, new modern ideas and seeing an, an urgency uh, in developing Japan's technological and industrial capacities, but who are also applying traditional Confucian ideas to interpret um, this process and to try and persuade using that same language to try and persuade the rulers that they really needed to adapt quickly so I, I guess around the time where you have this um this notion that people like um uh Sakuma developed was the idea of eastern morality and western technology uh well, and this to, to, to frame it um again for people who, who may not live in japan we have listeners in in other areas but it's a really fascinating time in japanese history because it, the edo period was essentially marked by being very closed off and very limited connection with countries around the world and then the meiji restoration period is marked by a rapid acceleration of the adoption of modernity and industrialization where I, I have read suggestions that within 50 years, 300 years of foreign technology was adopted in Japan, uh, electrification, railways, you know, other uh, military equipment that was such a rapid change in society. So let's, let's go to chapter two then. And what in this chapter drew you to wanting to include it? How does it frame the beginning as, as you define it, uh, of, of modern Confucianism in Japan? Well, uh, actually, it's um, by a scholar named Han Shuting, who's uh, at Kyushu University. So, um, yeah, she was recommended be, to me by um, uh, another um, Chinese um, scholar at uh, working at Kyushu University. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's actually a good place to start because um, Sakura Mishouzan, is, he's, a, he's a, an interesting sort of hybrid scholar. He was um, deeply schooled in Neo-Confucian learning, as, as many of his peers were, or all his peers were. Uh, but he was also very eager to embrace um, Western technology. He was interested in photography. He was interested in various kinds of inventions that could be adapted from the West and used in the, in the Japanese context. 
uh, he was interested in gunnery, of course, uh, and in modern gunnery uh, and the kinds of kinds of um, uh, Western, for example, mathematical learning that was needed to to apply it uh, precisely. Uh, and he um, was uh, also um, very eager to persuade the regional rulers and the central government. Uh, one of the need to um, uh, to adopt Western ideas and to learn Western languages in order to do so. And secondly, um, he was eager for Japanese to go abroad and study. And this actually became reality within you know, 15 years uh, or so after his death. Uh, so he was promoting these ideas, but he was doing so from a very Confucian uh, framework as well, as, as Han Shooting points out. So yeah, there, there's a, a very interesting hybridity um, about these scholars, which challenges our ideas of a, a, a sort of a clean cut with the past, and a, a shift in modernity. Uh, it's not quite like that. These people, some at least of these reformers were um, deeply um, committed to Confucian thinking, uh, and they were eager to, to use it, to interpret um, the process by which Japan should adapt uh, and change. There's an interesting through line that I'm, I'm trying to understand as it relates to how Japan, and it's still something that even in reading a lot about it, I, I don't quite understand how Japan was able to connect with the Western powers in a way that ultimately benefited only Japan. I mean, of course, as an island nation, uh, you can exclude what you want and you can take on what you want. But when you talk about going abroad to study, it reminds me of uh, reading about Peter the Great in Russia, who would have these what he would term embassies where he would take his court or he would take groups of people around Europe and he would learn from from various scholars and only bring back the things that were going to benefit Russia and it was one of the things that uh, when you look at how uh, Russia ad adopted modernity it's a very similar concept to what you're talking about in encouraging people to go abroad to study could you give me any background on on how the scholars of Confucianism at that time were able to create the filter in Japan where they were able to take on what was helpful and exclude what was possibly going to create dissension in, yeah. in politics? That's a really interesting um, question too, because on the one hand, you do have um, people like Sakuna Shouzan who were in a way traditionalists. They really wanted to hold on to Confucian learning. They believed that it was, you know, still essential to China's. Uh, sorry, I'll say that again to Japan's, um, you know, spiritual and moral, um, I guess, identity as it confronted this process of change. But you had another group, um, perhaps slightly later than him, um, though in some cases they were they were contemporary with his. Um, he was contemporary with them in their youth. You had a group uh, called the Meiji um, Circle. Um, the Meiji Six Circle, um, people like um, uh, people like Nishi Amane and um, Fukuzawa Yukichi, mm -hmm. um, and they they were inclined to repudiate Confucianism. So they, these were people who uh, either studied Western thought, philosophy, political thought, uh, science in Japan, uh, or, or they went abroad and studied it in the United States or in Europe uh, in the 1860s and 70s, uh, and they really didn't really see Confucianism as relevant um, to Japan's modernization, unlike um, 
Sakuma Shozan. So they represented a slightly different or rather different approach to the question of reform and adaptation. They were more for um, really uh, adopting Western ideas wholesale um, with some limitations, of course. So, however, they were uh, steeped in Confucian learning and in Chinese literacy. Of course, all people of their class were. These were people who'd grown up. Uh, it, as members of the samurai class during the late Edo or the Bakumatsu period. Uh, and so they were able to draw on this learning. Uh, and and I guess you'd say they're a fairly homogenous uh, group in terms of their, their, their backgrounds and their, their learning and their values. Um, they were able to draw on this learning in order to translate Western concepts and ideas using Chinese uh, characters. Uh, and often they drew on often obscure classical Chinese uh, antecedents to develop neologisms or even just new words um, to translate Western concepts. And on the whole, they were spectacularly successful to the extent that Chinese and Korean uh, students who came to study uh, at Japanese the new Japanese universities uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century mm-hmm. were absorbing these ideas too uh, very quickly because they were written in Chinese characters. Um, and it would have been more difficult, of course, from the resolvement if they'd been written in a kind of hybrid sort of uh, um, katakana, uh, sort of a transliteration of, of European concepts, which sometimes is the case, but more often they did use kanji to trans- transliterate these concepts. So these ideas are absorbed and spread very rapidly and with a high level accuracy. I mean, you, you see some claims that they, uh, the Japanese translators like Nishiyamane um, kind of misunderstood key Western concepts like liberalism, which were translated as GU. Um, I think that's kind of patronizing and nonsense. I think it's not they misunderstood them, it's actually they understood them too well. Uh, and actually, in, in some by the 1870s and 1880s, they were counseling against a very libertarian understanding of liberty. They wanted a liberty that was more kind of constrained so that it would serve the, the, the sort of national good of rebuilding the nation. Um, and they didn't want sort of people to go off and sort of you know start um, you know cultivating a highly individualistic notion of liberty, which kind of equated with libertin- libertinism or with a sort of um, rebelliousness against government. This was not really a convenient um, notion for a nation which was you know still in the developmental stage and facing external threats. So I think there was a clear understanding of the different nuances in the concept of liberty in European philosophy. And they wanted to avoid the kind of more libertine version of liberty. Um, so yeah, I think they were very, very successful. Uh, that to me is fascinating in, in that the time frame that we're talking about is where liberal thinking in the kind of like John Locke, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property was being adopted. Well, it was being, was being discussed more widely and yet they, they, they saw it and they, they brought that into Japan and they put it into a separate category of GU, essentially being freedom of the individual rather than wanting to put that into a wider understanding of Confucianism. And, and those are the two concepts that I'd like to ask you about next, because you've, you've, you've kind of conflated uh, in your definition of how Confucianism developed in Japan in uh, the the concept of morality and nationalism and obviously this is you know several hundred years ago and in um, and in a completely different time frame but we have these concepts in modern political thinking but could you explain 
how the way that we view nationalism now is oftentimes in a in a often in a negative idea in the exclusion of other nations uh, and other nations thinking to the uh, betterment of our, of our own nation was this uh, a, a japanese nationalism that was only trying to promote the japanese version of confucianism or, or was there some some wider connectivity that was still at play i think you get an element of both you have a, mm -hmm. a um in the in the sort of going to the later 19th century um uh, as japan japanese leadership i guess were feeling under pressure and also kind of humiliated by the unequal treaties being imposed upon them and as you have japanese scholars uh traveling in europe uh and kind of seeing for themselves the sheer power uh, military power technological prowess of european nations um and coming back to japan and sort of trying to tell tell everyone about it you do get a kind of defensive nationalism arising mm. uh, which is you know we've got to protect ourselves um from these uh, you know Tezujiro referred to them as, as you know coming in coming at us like a thief in the night uh and so you get this idea that that japan had to fortify itself um not only technologically but also morally and politically by asserting a distinctive Japanese identity. Um, and you see the certain developments such as the uh, Imperial Rescript on Education, uh, which is promulgated in 1890 in a very traditional Confucianist language, sort of asserting that the, 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 the essential characteristics of Japan's uh, political moral system and difference from the West. Um, so you, there is that defensiveness, but there is also, I guess, a, a healthy, kind of nationalism, which is, you know, we do have our moral traditions uh, and we shouldn't just throw everything out um, just because we have to completely westernize. We don't have to do that. Um, we should keep what's valuable um, and adopt, you know, and, and hold to the slogan of Eastern morality and Western technology. Uh, so you do have these two trains of thinking. Um, sometimes they're separated. Sometimes you see a more progressive uh, elements, for example, in uh, some, some Christian thinkers who drew on kind of Confucian exemplars, but also um, assert and also believed in distinctive um, national identity for Japan, but who also believed Christianity and democracy were compatible with that. Um, so, yeah, there are these competing trains of thinking about Japanese national identity and its moral integrity. Uh, some of them are quite conservative, some reactionary, some fairly aggressive, uh, and they all draw on somewhere or other upon Confucian exemplars or Confucian precedents. Um, but by the early, perhaps the first decade of the 20th century, you're seeing the conservative element winning out over the rest and a, a kind of protective um, uh, or defensive nationalism uh, taking precedence. Um, and that's into the second de decade of the 20th century, that sort of lens take takes on a stronger uh, coloring as you know fears of communist communism or the spread of you know uh, dangerous western ideas of communism and anarchism start taking hold well before we get into uh that directly i'd like to just talk about your organization of the contents of the book because in reviewing the chapters that you made available to me it seems that the chapters in the book focus on either a, a person, I mean, you've already brought up uh, Sakamoto Shozan, or uh, a movement, so the kingly way or the imperial way, uh, or a period of time. 
Sir uh, Daito Bunka Gakuin on it, the the way that it was viewed at a certain period of time. Was this a conscious effort to balance the contents of the book to make sure these were uh, equally represented, or is it uh, how you arrived at the contents of the book based on the people who submitted work for it? Yeah, a little. I think part of it was there was the latter that um, that it really did depend on um, what people submitted within the sort of frame framework of the parameters I'd set out when I. Um, I uh, was um, advertising the book proposal to, to prospective contributors. Uh, I did solicit some content specifically around particular um, thinkers. So, you know, I did um, a couple of people who uh, re were recruited. They were interested in writing about Inoue Tetsujiro, uh, who's, who's a towering figure in not only in, in Japanese modern Japanese Confucianism, but in modern Japanese philosophy. Uh, and whose 60-year career between the 1890s and the 1940s just um, can't really be underestimated in terms of its impact uh, um, ideologically as well as philosophically. So I was keen to recruit scholars who write about that. Um, and also um, I commissioned a, uh, an article from the French scholar, uh, Eddie de Formant, uh, on Yasuoka Masahiro. Uh, and he's also a very, very important figure in um, in the uh, sort of mid or mid to late twentieth century, uh, in in terms of uh, someone who had a lot of public influence and who was really really well networked uh, in the sort of pre and post war political system, and and also well networked with prominent corporate leaders and businessmen um, in the propagation of his 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 conservative Confucian ethics. So again, I wanted someone to write a piece about him. Um, but yeah, others, um, they were more decided by the writers. Um, so the, uh, the chapter by Masako Russell on the uh, reformer, women's education reformer. Um, uh, she, oh, sorry, I'm just reading off the chapter list now, Shimoda Utako. Um, that was something that I hadn't actually commissioned. That was just uh, proposed to me and it looked really interesting. Um, uh, precisely because it dealt with the issue of women's education and the question of how much a kind of Confucian or hybrid Confucian nationalist morality influenced uh, even women, women's education reformers in the early 20th century. So I'd say in answer to the question, there's a mix of both. Well, let's do a dive into that chapter then. It, it, it seems like something um, I, I've never been in a position to put together a curated volume of uh, submitted articles. I, I hope to be there at some point in the future. But this was uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about something that you learned through the process of putting this book together. And it seems like uh, the Kokumin Dotoko for, for women uh, is something that you hadn't anticipated, but something that came up during the process of putting this book together. So could you give us some information on that? And also, uh, in relation to how much has the Confucian background in Japanese political philosophy assisted in perhaps even the most modern of, of movements to create equality within society? Is this still something that, that the echoes of the Confucian background are being uh, utilized or, or felt in the modern age? So Shimura Utako is, is, is an interesting sort of transitional character, and she sort of exemplifies some of the themes and trends I was talking about. Um, so she received a fairly traditional um, 
Confucian education. So she came from a family of Confucian scholars and she was given a very good education for an upper class uh, girl in her time, much like um, some of the other um, women's education reformers of her era. So there were um, reformers such as herself who had this traditional uh, um, uh, educational background, but there are also some other um, Japanese uh, women's education reformers who were entirely educated overseas in the United States in the 1870s. Um, but surprisingly, um, they really agreed on some of the main principles of how women's education reform should proceed. Uh, and it was in accordance with the good wife and wise mother or the Ozai Kenbo ideal of educating women um, to be good managers of households uh, and therefore to assist in, in, in the process of J Japan's developmentalism, um, which sounds kind of conservative to us now, but it was actually a very radical idea in its time um, because it required the mass education of all women, of all classes, uh, at least you know for even lower class women going up to having an education with, to the point where they were um, sufficiently numerate and literate. Um, and for upper-class women, perhaps um, the choice of going into higher education. So, so some of these women, at least, like um, uh, Sh uh, Shimoda, had this traditional uh, Confucian education, and they did put it to some use, uh, even though they disavowed any uh, explicit identification with Confucianism, um, because they considered it kind of to be a bit sexist. Um, and to sort of disparage women's abilities. Um, but someone like Shimura Utako is interesting because she joined in this, I was talking about this defensive nationalism. She sort of joined in this trend in the early 20th century, um, particularly after 1910, 1911, you have this kind of upsurgence of, I guess, of, of fear of, of the influence of communism and anarchism. Um, particularly in 1911, there was a plot to assassinate the emperor. Uh, and a bunch of communists and anarchists were rounded up and a couple of them were executed. I'm not too sure how many of them were actually guilty of the crime that was attributed to them. But the main point was that there did develop this deep fear in the elites of, of, of in Japanese elite political intellectual classes that these really dangerous Western ideas were going to cause chaos. And so um, uh, Shimoda became increasingly conservative in these circumstances, and she was drawn to uh, these kind of national morality ideas, which have been associated with Inoue Tezujiro, um, of, of developing a distinctive Japanese morality or protecting and cultivating a, a distinctive Japanese morality, which is you know, different from that of the West. And so, yeah, she, she was from the sort of 1910s onwards, she was uh, very keen on um, propagating uh, the cultivation of distinctive women's virtues or futoku. Uh, and she often drew on Confucian uh, exemplars and precedents to do so. Uh, so in her case, she's not really explicitly advocating for Confucianism, but she's drawing it on it as a kind of subordinate uh, inspiration, I guess, um, uh, from, as one of a number of traditions through which to bolster uh, women's distinctive morality and uh, sort of keep, keep at bay these dangerous communist or feminist ideas that were you know, seen to be taking hold at the time. Well, um, to... Again, it, it brings to mind at the time that this is that this is going on in Japan, uh, a, a growing imperialist power in Asia. There is a, as a kind of different message that's being sent in traditionally Christian Europe for the role of women in the family unit in, in the community. I mean, the comparison of 
how the National Socialist Party of Germany at this time had a uh, had a slogan of uh, Kutsch Kinder, so the, the, the kitchen, the church, and your children, uh, in relation to what women could do to support to support the country. And it's, again, how nationalism was being uh, framed in the European situation. Do you think that Confucianism, because it, it had a, a, an inclusivity baked into it, meant that it was more women were, were more able to, I don't know, be part of society at this point, even if it was still in a restricted sense through, you know, traditionalist values? Yeah, um, I think in, in the case of the, the old Sai Kenbo ideology, it was really European. That's what some Japanese scholars have been arguing, that mm -hmm. uh, it, it did sort of arise out of contact, particularly when, um, some uh, young Japanese women were being sent to the United States to, to get educated. Um, what they were being taught was ideas quite similar to those of the Yosai Kembo ideal, that the, the ideal place for an upper-class woman is, is in the household, but she must be highly educated to fulfill, fulfill her role uh, properly, uh, you know, to be economical, to use scientific, scientific principles, as it were, to manage her household uh, smartly uh, and, and frugally. Um, so it's a version of the separate spheres argument, um, but it does require a high, it does require universal education to fulfill it. In terms of the Confucian input to that, I think it was more an idea that there needed to be some continuity in introducing what otherwise seemed to be a very, very revolutionary idea that all girls should be educated, at least to some degree, um, which was a bit of a break from the past where perhaps only rich merchants or farmers or, or samurai daughters could receive uh, a classical education. Um, this is the idea, you know, everyone should do it. And, and this, you know, an idea that comes out of, you know, industrialization. So in order to kind of soften the blow of this idea, of course, there was a call for continuity uh, of ensuring that these same girls who are being taught mathematics, uh, literacy, foreign languages, and so on, are uh, also being taught traditional Confucian morality. Um, and to that extent, I think, uh, Shimoda Utako was tapping into that by urging the sort of instruction of women in traditional um, morals, traditional women's morals. And she, as, as uh, Professor Russell, the author of the chapter, points out, she drew very extensively on traditional chi uh, Japanese uh, and to some extent Chinese Confucian literature for moral exemplars for uh, Japanese women to follow, and also um, use the royal family itself, the women of the royal family, uh, and uh, to, to show them as exemplars for Japanese, ordinary, ordinary Japanese women to follow. Um, so I think there's a certainly adaptation of ideas, uh, but the concept of Yosai Kenbo itself is very modern. It, I should say, well, very, very European in origin. The text that we're talking about is the handbook of Confucianism in modern Japan and uh, I would love to go through every single chapter in detail and and pick your brains on this but unfortunately we don't we don't have unlimited time but I, I would like to focus on that word modern in my final question so how much you know through your own investigation through your process of putting this book together, reading the works of other uh, noted experts in the field. Uh, it's a similar question to what I asked you at the end of our 
previous interview, but I'm kind of interested to hear how maybe your opinions have developed over the last couple of years, or whether they've changed at all, or whether they have been fortified by this um, activity. How much is Confucianism part of modern Japan as we see it in 2022 uh, in relation to the way that political decisions are make, made, the way that moral decisions are made, uh, the way that society addresses questions such as equality? Um, I think as a kind of political philosophy or an ideology, its, it's influence has been very much weakened in the post-war era, you might have a kind of certain kind of folk morality ideas like flower piety still persisting, but um, it's very hard to say that it has much influence, at least after 1945. Uh, and that's because Confucianism had become so closely associated with the uh, imperial system, with the wartime system, and with even with colonialism towards uh, China and South Korea. And towards, uh, Korea. No, not, uh, to cut, did, not, not to cut you off, I mean, uh, but do you think that people, even if they haven't been educated in Confucianism, would recognize its roots in the way that society is still run on a daily basis, the way that politicians make decisions, the way that they make appeals to uh, Japanese people uh, on a political basis? I mean, they might not call it Confucianism, but do you yeah. think it's recognizable in how decisions in social, moral, political life are made? I mean, if, if you're asking that question from, from an outsider's point of view, uh, you might see some elements in it in, the, for example, the promotion of familialism, uh, of sort of pro-family type policies in the same way in which in, in some European countries, people might appeal to Christian principles uh, mm -hmm. to promote certain pro-family policies. Um, but yeah, in terms of its explicit influence, I think it's kind of not so important anymore, to be honest. Uh, and, and that does go back to that sort of break uh, in 1945, at least its intellectual influence is much, much dissipated today in Japan. Um, so yeah, if, if you're talking about a certain kind of folk uh, moralities, perhaps certain pro-family orientations and some polit politicians, uh, yes, you could say there's a resi residual influence there. Um, that would be true. But I think you'd have to look to other sides, particularly South Korea, uh, to see it perhaps a stronger influence in, in um, perhaps motherhood statements by politicians, for example, or even in, 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 in traditional family practices and community practices. Um, but you know, in Japan's case, I'd say it's much dissipated. Do you think it was dissipated by the fact that um, in a kind of top-down way, the constitution of Japan largely modeled on Western and particularly American values replaced the decision-making processes of politicians. It kind of created a, a whole new rule book from which that they could draw their political decisions. Yeah, I mean, in the pre to post-war era, I mean, you had a, a class of bureaucrats um, who had a certain sort of Confucian self-conception. Uh, and this is something that some uh, scholars such as Eddie Dufourmont and the uh, Saitama uh, University scholar um, Roger Brown have pointed out that there were influential thinkers such as Yasuoka Masahiro, who kind of did have some, had some effect on this self-conception, self-image of some bureaucrats and political leaders that they were kind of uh, the wise 
the morally cultivated who were entitled to lead and guide the people in a kind of vague or broadly Confucian idea. Um, but as a generation, they died out in the post-war era. Their ideas had some influence, uh, perhaps it fosters an esprit de corps amongst the developmentalist-minded uh, bureaucrats who you know, saw themselves as steering Japan's rebuilding. Um, but their ideas did die out in the course of the Cold War. Um, so often, as Eddie de Fourmont says in his chapter, after 1970, it's kind of hard to see their influence uh, as a kind of you know, guiding philosophy or ideology in uh, Japanese politics. So I, I'd say, yes, there, there was, uh, and, but, and it steadily died down, I guess, in the post-war era. Thank you very much uh, for your time today, Sean. As I said, I mean, we could go on and, and speak for hours. And if you ever wanted to know what a uh, university lunchtime discussion between associate professors sounds like, this is it. Uh, <laughs> the textbook that we've been talking about is the Handbook of Confucianism in Modern Japan. And we are timing this interview to come out with its release. And we will also include a link uh, if you're interested in uh, hearing more about this absolutely fascinating topic. Thank you so much for your time today, Sean, and I wish you all the best of luck uh, with this text. I hope it uh, goes very well and that we will speak to you again in a couple of years on the podcast uh, with your next volume. I hope so. Okay, thank you very much. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is... If you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.